I'm Hannah Zunlevy. No, I'm reading the wrong thing. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 181 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have a new favourite snack that I feel might be divisive. What is it? Are you spooning a yoghurt? No, I'm eating. Fact to come soon. Oh, hang on. My, I mean, it should be what Hannah's having, to be honest, but no, it is some sort of vehicle, so toast or a cracker, spread quite thickly with horseradish sauce and then topped with cottage cheese. Mm. Ugh. No. That's nearly put me off while I'm eating. Go on then. Come on. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and this is the sound of me finishing my second birthday cake of the week. Ah, oh, happy birthday. Is that the one I made you? It is the one you made me and it's absolutely yummy. Why didn't I get any of that? Jen, you stayed for like 45 minutes and just drank wine and smoked facts. <laughs> Seriously, that was a drive-by partying by Jen. She managed to fit an entire party no. into 45 minutes. <laughs> Did my best, guys, you know. I'm Jen Offord, and somebody better call David Icke because my hands are reptilian. I mean, I hear what you're saying, Jen, but I'm pretty sure we shouldn't be encouraging him. Crusty. It's that time of year, yeah, isn't crusty. it? I know, it's horrible. That's it, that's, what, that's all I've got for you. It's that time of year where you realise that you buy like little tins of lip balm about five or six times a year, but you never seem to have any in your house when you look for them. I have a tube in every room because it is my hands get cracked, but my lips just go mad like they're trying to escape my face. Later on, I chat to CEO and founder of the peanut app, Michelle Kennedy, about bringing people together and why women get written off as silly. I speak to Catherine Deakin from the charity Changing Faces about life for people with facial differences, James Bond and Christmas parties. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking about award season, and in Rated or Dated, we are squinting to count the buttons on Chris Christopherson's shirt as we watch 1976's A Star Is Born. Um, where two? Are they? One? <laughs> it's funny, actually, because sometimes there's no buttons, and sometimes there's all the buttons. I've never seen a double-breasted shirt before, I was but I'm sure we'll get to that. looks like a chef. What's going on? Anyway. <laughs> but first, won't someone think of the Jedis? The boy Jedis, that is. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where I can assure you any farts will be well-trousered. In fact, my stomach's dodgy today, so I'm wearing two pairs of leggings, tracksuit bottoms and a bin bag. Bloody hell. Jen, you look confused. Have you not seen the video? No, I haven't seen the video. What video? Piers Corbyn has been... Oh, uh, right, yeah. He's been on the district line with his pals, chanting a song against the latest COVID-19 restrictions. And it, it kind of goes like this. Wearing a mask is like trying to keep a fart in your trousers. Wearing a mask is like trying to keep a fart in your trousers. I mean, does he take his trousers off when he farts? I don't understand. <laughs> What's the message? Yeah, that is... Odd. Does he mean that it that the particles waft through? What does he mean? I think it's probably best not to dig too deep into what he means and just it seems madness. <laughs> Imagine trying to get to work on the district line while Piers Corbin and his mad cronies are just wandering through the tube, just chanting repeatedly. Wearing a mask is like trying to keep a fart in your trousers. I have to come back to the point again and again and again and again, and I'm sure we will come back to it even more. It's really not that much of a hardship, is it? 
nope, it's just not. Like wearing a mask is, if you wear glasses as I do, it can be a bit annoying sometimes. But like in the great scheme of things, you know, it's not, it's not that big a deal, is it really? We could twist Corbyn's, Piers Corbyn's, I must add, you know, it's, it's important to say which Corbyn. Could twist Corbyn's words and just say, wearing a mask is as basic as wearing your trousers. <laughs> because it is, it's actually easier to put on than a pair of trousers as well, so, you know. Definitely. Okay, so, you will by now no doubt have heard of the terrible tragedy that took place last week as 27 people drowned while attempting to make it across the English Channel to the UK. It's the biggest single loss of life in the channel since the International Organisation for Migration began collecting data in 2014 and those deaths included a heavily pregnant woman and children. So, what does the Home Office say to calls for safe legal routes for claiming asylum in the UK? Well, apparently we'd like there to be more patrols, better cooperation between French and British intelligence services and a negotiation on a policy of returning migrants who reach the UK to France, which went down about as well as you'd imagine with the French, as Priti Patel was disinvited from a summit called to discuss the problem. So there you go. That's our response to this humanitarian crisis. We'll sort it by making it harder to cross. Which, can I just say, is why we're in this humanitarian crisis, because they have made it harder to get to the UK. So more people are using the only channel, literally, that's open to them. Yeah, exactly that. So I just want to go back and clarify a couple of points here, if I may. Now, I didn't lead with migrants in this story, because although that is exactly what these people were, they were also primarily people, Mm -hmm. human beings forced from their home, trying to find a more hospitable place to exist. I'm also not highlighting that women died because I think it's somehow more tragic, although children, yes, I do think that that is more tragic, if I'm honest. And of course, you're free to disagree with me. After all, all of those people had their own individual value and also no doubt once had loved ones. Maybe they were with them on the boat. Maybe they died as well. The reasons I'm telling you that a pregnant woman and children died is because I think it speaks to how truly desperate they are that they would risk the lives of their children to come here. Yeah. And while I feel fairly confident that most people listening to our podcast will be on the same page here, let me be clear, they are not taking those risks for the sake of accessing universal credit or to never get an appointment to see a GP. (laughs) And if I haven't persuaded you... Let's have a look at our old friend, No Recourse to Public Funds, a policy which applies to people who are subject to immigration control as set out in Section 115 of the Immigration and Asylum Act 1999. We are not losing out by letting these people, or rather people like them, since they are now dead, into this country. I wholeheartedly agree with you, Jen. And there's no easy solution to the horrors that you've just outlined. And I know it sounds mad, but a deal with France seems the only way forward sort of long term in sorting this out, as unlikely as that feels right now. And indeed, what would really make a difference is a change of heart from the Home Office when it comes to attitudes towards refugees and the hostile environment that's been hothoused since Theresa May introduced it as policy back in 2012. And yeah, I'm aware it's very difficult to have a change of heart when you clearly don't have a heart to begin with. Well, at least we, the public, can protest when we feel our government is getting it backwards, right? Well, increasingly wrong. 
well, we've had our eye on tragedy in the channel, the prospects of another lockdown come Christmas, and whatever the fuck it is Boris Johnson's doing on an hourly basis, Pretty Patel has quietly been stuffing even more punitive anti-protest powers into an already draconian police crime sentencing and courts bill. First heard in the Commons in March and now passing through its committee stage in the Lords, the bill was already a major threat to our liberties, with one of its chief provisions being to allow police to impose severe restrictions on protests on the basis of noise. To quote Ian Dunt's excellent op-ed for the iPaper, if they were loud enough to cause serious unease, alarm or distress to a single passerby, a description which covers any demonstration at all, the police power was triggered. As it's entered its final stages before becoming law, Patel has added aggressive new provisions to the bill, including expanding stop and search, so that police will be able to stop and search at protests to avoid a, quote, public nuisance. Nicely vague, that phrase, isn't it? And refusal means you could face jail time of up to a year. Furthermore, attaching yourself to anything, blocking roads, carrying equipment in order to do this, or even potentially linking arms or holding hands at a protest will be illegal. And last but absolutely not least, there is the Serious Disruption Prevention Order, or SDPO, which is basically a protest ASBO that can be imposed on anyone convicted of a, quote, protest-related offence. Nicely vague, that phrase, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Again, to paraphrase Ian Dunt's very comprehensive article, well worth your time, even that is not enough. A further amendment allows the SDPO to be imposed on people whose activities were likely to result in serious disruption. As Dunt says, in other words, you do not even have to have been convicted of a crime. You do not even have to have caused disruption. It's enough that you might have. So this is, and I am not exaggerating here, an existential threat to our rights to freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. And I've got to add, when I was researching this to make sure I got my facts right, there is very little about it in the news. I remember there being a lot of chat about it initially, but I haven't heard anything about it in the last week or so. Yeah. At all, I don't Sneaking think. in these new amendments and provisions. And it's terrifying. It's, it's like a dictatorship rather than the democracy we supposedly live in. Everything they do just seems so transparent, like curbing right to protest at a time where we've got, you know, arguably a fucking lot to protest about. You know? Exactly <laughs> like that. It's... Exactly that. And also, I think maybe this has been bubbling away for so, so long, Jen, but they've got that huge majority so they can just they can mm. just push stuff through. Where's the opposition? Yeah. Where's Labour on this? I mean, that is really shocking. There was a, a good series of tweets from Nadia Whitmore, a Labour MP, but apart from that, I've seen very little. And in fairness to a lot of MPs, there is other stuff that they're having to deal with with their constituents on a daily basis because, you know, we're still in, the, we're still in a pandemic. There's still a lot going wrong that they have to deal with for the people who voted for them, but it just seems outrageous that this has been snuck through. What else are they sneaking through? Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if there's no one talking about it, i.e. the opposition, how would any of us fuckers know? So, yeah, it's um, it's a very, very worrying time we're living in. Would you like some good news, Jen? I really would. Yes, please. <laughs> well, as you, Jen, mentioned in last week's mail out, Stella Creasy, MP for my very own home of Walthamstow, 
has been in the news because she took her three-month-old son to a Commons debate and Parliament did not like it, mm. with Creasy receiving an email informing her she had broken the rules on, quote, behaviour and courtesies. Now, that seems like I'm starting off the good news section with a bit of shit. I know it's usually the way, but actually, in fairness to Westminster, those rules are now being reviewed, which is a really quick turnaround, with both Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Speaker Lindsay Hoyle stressing that the Commons needs to be modern, flexible and fit for parents. Yeah. Good news in itself. Yeah. But let's get back to Creasy, who has recently launched This Mum Votes, a non-partisan project to ensure mums of young children have a seat at the table in decision-making in the UK by increasing the numbers of women with young children or caring responsibilities elected at all levels of office. More mums in politics, basically, and it's being helmed by the excellent pregnant then screwed. I mean, I don't think you're going to argue with that, Jen. I'm not going to argue with it. No, I've already signed up, mate. Here she is. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, I imagine it'll surprise you not one iota that when it comes to family, if you have young children and you are a man, it is not a barrier to selection and election to office. If you're a woman, however, exactly, it sometimes feels like all those steps forward haven't been made at all. And add to that the opportunities for more family and women-friendly policies that are constantly missed something that has been underlined in thick sharpie a million times by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it becomes clear that the need to get better representation in Parliament is, is vital. So as well as getting more women into elected offices, the three policy pledges of this month votes, which it aims to deliver across the UK, are pretty straightforward. Number one, good quality, affordable childcare. I mean, wow. Oh, and that's a little bit left field, isn't it, Jen? <laughs> <laughs> Two, ring-fence paid paternity leave and all jobs advertised as flexible by default. And three, and I've got to say, like, it's hard to pick a favourite, but for right now, reform universal credit might just pip it for me. And it all comes down to the fact that Parliament has to be a place that is just not accommodating, but also attracts people from all walks of life. And also, mm -hmm. when it's got them, provides a supportive environment when challenges come their way. Yeah, absolutely. 100% to all of that. I realise I've been nodding my head throughout, which isn't <laughs> great for a podcast. But yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was chatting to some friends about this the other day because someone had sort of read the headline and they were a bit like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. And I was like, I'll tell you how I feel about it. <laughs> um, this is about her being told not to bring her, her son into um, the commons. Crazy, that is, her. And like, what, you know, I was just thinking like, probably the majority of MPs are parents, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I would imagine. I'm sure like more family friendly policies would benefit literally all of them, not just the women like Stella Creasy, like Joe Swinson. And it would benefit us. And I think that a parliament, it's not enough to just be like, oh, well, you know, well, the society's a bit behind the times or whatever, because society is massively behind the times in terms of what parents actually fucking need, like mm -hmm. childcare that they can afford childcare that doesn't cost like one in one parent's entire annual salary which Absolutely. is what it is for a lot of people parliament should be leading the way parliament should be setting the example for other employers to follow it's that simple agreed absolutely agreed uh, one more thing to end the bush telegraph i just want to read out this recent tweet from felicity ward and she said if you're in the UK and you see someone begging tonight, if you have it to give, give it to them. 
It's three degrees in London and it can keep them warm tonight with booze or drugs or a bed. Don't judge them. Life is hard and winter is long. Yeah. Amen to that. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week slash year where we celebrate International Men's Day by smashing our faces (laughs) into our keyboards repeatedly as we watch our elected representatives chat about gender equality. That's right. It was the annual International Men's Day debate in the Commons last week. And if you were hoping to witness someone say something really fucking stupid, as is customary (laughs) at such discussions, you will not be disappointed by Conservative MP Nick Fletcher's contribution to proceedings. Why is it that they always fail to disappoint us on the things that it would be nice for them to disappoint us on? Bemoaning a recent trend for, and I say trend, is it? For female replacements <laughs> of male characters in TV and film. Fletcher asked, was it any wonder so many boys are turning to a life of crime? <laughs> You're right, rising crime levels are doubtless more likely to be linked to Jodie Whittaker playing Doctor Who than 11 years of systematically demonising and depriving poor people, eh Nick? Let's listen to the nuanced point he claimed to have made. That might be my favourite bit of the story. It's very nuanced, he said. You've taken it totally out of context. Anyway, people like me reacted with mirth to this assertion and agreed that it is hard to find good role models as an aspiring Time Lord. (laughs) So, he said, I'm going to do the accent if you don't mind, Mick. Sorry. go Uh, for it. uh, Apologies to Northerners everywhere. Everywhere, not least in the cultural sphere, there seems to be a call from a tiny yet very vocal minority that every male character or good role model must have a female replacement. One only needs to look at the discussion surrounding who will play the next James Bond. And it's not just James Bond. In recent years, we have seen Doctor Who, Ghostbusters, Luke Skywalker chuckles haha the equalizer don't even know who that is <laughs> edward woodward all replaced by women and men are left with the craze and tommy shelby <laughs> is there any wonder we are seeing so many young men committing crime that's it that's all you've been left with that's it not even luke skywalker's safe is nothing sacred And that's not even true, by the way. Luke Skywalker, played by Mark Hamill himself, was in those fucking films. And let's not even start with the very, very obvious counter-argument that there are considerably more role models for boys in almost every single walk of life. In an incredible bit of timing, Jen, I've got to say that this Sunday's Chops, I'm talking to Caitlin Davis about her book, Queens of the Underworld, which is all about female crooks, basically, who were incredible and notorious in their time, but never got the recognition of, like, the craze or Tommy Shelby, even though he's fictional. So, you know, where's the balance there? Well, fucking lock your daughters up, guys, because they'll be (laughs) turning to a life of crime ASAP. Now, I speak only for myself here of course but i i don't want the next james bond to be a woman because no. i think james bond is a bell end and doesn't exactly exemplify many typical female behaviors that is a criticism <laughs> by the way and i also question why in the name of fuck anyone would think james bond is a good role model for young <laughs> boys but whatevs what i would like to see is more significant 
interesting and balanced roles for women and girls in the first place. Mm -hmm. So why don't you take that back to the Commons, which is 66% male, FYI, and have a chat about that, Nick. (laughs) I'm joined by Michelle Kennedy, founder and CEO of the Peanut app. Hello, Michelle. Hi. Thanks for joining me today. So first of all, I know all about peanut because I am a new mum and it is a fairly recent phenomenon. So for anyone who's not aware of what peanut is, could you just tell me a little bit about it? Sure. So peanut is an app to connect with other women who are at a similar life stage as you. So whether you're going through fertility treatment or thinking about adoption surrogacy, whether you're pregnant or a new mum, whether you're a mum of toddlers or more recently, whether you are going through perimenopause, menopause or postmenopause, or you can find other women who are going through the same thing as you chat, laugh, cry, share, go for coffee, whatever it is that you want to do. Um, but it's a safe space for women. And it's not just about those life stages. It's we've got everything in between. Women have groups on Animal Crossing, there's a stitch and bitch, there's a book, whatever it is that's your thing, it's it's all on on peanut. We like to say it's the the antithesis of everything else that's out there in terms of social. It's safe, it's funny, it's not meant to be a, a doom scroll and it's not meant to make you feel bad about yourself. No one's living their best life on Peanut, they're just living their life and uh, super proud of it. So it started as a platform for mums, wasn't it? So it was to connect mothers basically who were, I guess, feeling isolated or or lonely and that's something that like lots of new mums speak about a sort of sense of loneliness or isolation after becoming a parent is that what inspired you is that something that you experienced firsthand yourself yes I'd just become a mum and I was building dating apps actually that's where I started and uh, so wasn't using dating apps was literally in the world of like reading weird forums at 2am and trying to work out and navigate and and actually it was incredibly lonely like that period of time was really lonely my girlfriends weren't having babies at the same time as me um my son was beautiful but did not a lot um (laughs) and I didn't really like anticipate that I don't know what I thought he would be doing but what I didn't really understand was that there are these long periods of time where you don't even necessarily hear your own normal voice you might hear a voice where you know you're talking to this new little person in your life but you're not talking and getting out of the house is a military operation and you know it just feels that sense of no one else in the world understands what I'm doing right now and then I used to walk past like coffee shops on the rare occasion I'd get out of the house and there were these groups of women who were together and I was like how do you know each other like how where do I find that? So that was the starting point. And then obviously it became so much more because I think because we obsessed about the product and we obsessed about trust and we obsessed about safety and I wanted every woman to feel like this was her place. Women started to share so much more. So of course there's all the stuff about my baby won't sleep or whatever it is, but actually there's about women talking about their sex life or relationships, asking their boss for a rise, financial concerns. And, and, And to me, it's just evidence of the fact that women wanted something good, like a good place to connect. No negative. There's nothing negative on peanut. We don't allow it. It's just not permitted. And and we build actively to prevent that. And so I wanted to just have this little world where when you open your phone, it's nourishing. You don't feel bad. You don't feel badly. You just feel like you can find a connection with someone else. And it was really important. 
So your background is in app development? Or- I, I ran a dating app. So I was deputy CEO at Badoo and then we built what became Bumble. So. Okay, that's interesting because a lot of people have, and I'll come back to this in a minute, but a lot of people have referred to it as like Tinder for mums because you kind of swipe through. But yeah, so basically the, the premise is that you go through it and you look for people within a geographical location, within a range that you set and you try and connect with them basically. You know, whatever, you look at their profile and you look at their interests and things like that and you think, oh, like she looks like someone has similar interest to me someone I might be able to connect with I've been on a few peanut dates as it were myself and it was because I gave birth last year my first daughter um, obviously in the midst of a global pandemic massive massive restrictions in terms of what you could do I presume that you have seen the community grow exponentially in the last year is that right yeah honestly I think that there's nothing like a pandemic that we've never experienced before um, to really actually make you realize how important like human connectivity is and like humanity is and just being able to like find that in in different parts and not just on your own personal level right I I have a two-year-old and she's very much like a pandemic child and and you see it in them like I remember when she started to see people for the first time outside of our house she was literally amazed that there were these other people around so it was a really challenging time and women wanted to reach out but we did have to build tools to help women connect in a different way right people weren't meeting in real life in the same way that they used to actually location became less important it was way more important just to find someone else who was on your wave level than someone else who lived in your street so all of the th- the rule book that we had in terms of like density and whatever was out the window, that, that kind of wasn't the thing anymore. But there were other things like we knew that some women didn't want to talk about the pandemic. Like literally they'd had their fill. They were dealing with it all day. Maybe they had homeschooling, partners at home, whatever it was. And they just didn't want to like keep reliving that. So we built tools like uh, mute keywords so you could mute any content around pandemic, covid whatever it was but we also knew the importance of hearing one another and like connectivity in that way so we launched peanut pods which is like live audio so they're like drop-in conversations usually around 20 women chatting about something you can drop in you can listen you can participate you can do it while you're driving you can do it while you're cooking whatever you want to do you can just kind of dip in and be part of the conversation and I think for me it's those moments of humanity where I'm like we were all starved of it. And Peanut was really there and was a friend to so many like women when they felt probably at their lowest and the most put upon, right? We were the most time poor demographic because all of a sudden, and, and, and it is the case, if you've got people at home, if you've got elderly parents or other relatives, it all came to us. We were the ones making sure they had food in their fridge and they were getting their vaccination and they Like it was all on us. And where did we go? Who was checking on us to see that we were all right? And the fact of the matter is the government was allowing people to go out and watch football matches and women were still giving birth on their own. Like it was so disproportionate, the impact on women and men for the pandemic that of course women wanted to come to Peanut and just be like with other women who could be like, it's all right, I've got you, it's normal. Or yeah, I've been there or this worked for me or watch this really terrible true crime drama because it helped distract me, whatever it is. Like that's what you needed. And and so I think that's probably why we saw such engagement. I'm going to come back to that point 
about you know the the tinder for mums if you will because i think a lot of things that are aimed at women there is a tendency for people to dismiss it as a bit silly so i think tinder for mums sounds quite flippant like you know we call things chick lit or rom-coms or whatever we kind of we try and sort of minimize them and make them sound like basically you know if it's something that women are interested in it's bound to be stupid when actually the service that you're providing what you've just described there is is a bit of a lifeline for a lot of women you know, Tinder for mums is super reductive, right? And I, I cringe every time I hear it. And, I, you know, sure. Do I hope that Peanut has the success that Tinder had and, and has? Absolutely, right? Do I want us to be, you know, the next billion dollar company? Absolutely. Do I think that women deserve a safe space, which is built by women for women, which isn't built on the foundations of every other social network that we know, where we don't care about how many likes you've got or followers. There is no ego about being verified or not. None of that exists on Peanut. And that's because women built it. And we thought about what matters to women, not about what matters to a masculine economy, right? That That's a totally different thing. So it is reductive. And yeah, it is annoying. And I agree with you. I hate stuff like femtech. Drives me mad. Like, why isn't it tech? It, it, oh, I've never heard I, that I before. Remember. That's awful. <laughs> oh my God, it's the worst. What and does femtech mean? Like any app like, that's aimed at women? Yeah. Oh, that's revolting. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Oh yeah, I hear it all the time. Mompreneur? I can't even say it. Mompreneur. Oh yeah. my God. I, 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 no, absolutely not. Please do not. <laughs> it's just unacceptable. So there's so much of yeah. this stuff where it is reductive. And you're right, people, people do say oh, do, you, you know, do women need that? Is that the thing? And I'm like, have you been a woman online? Do you know what it's like to be a woman online? Have you ever just been going about your business and had an unsolicited gross message on LinkedIn? I have. Have you ever just been going about your business and just been harassed on Twitter? I have. You know, any of these things. So is it any wonder that we need to build something for ourselves in a completely different infrastructure? And sorry to say it, that is only for women and that is really just focused on making them have the best experience where we do, do you know what? Unapologetically, I focus on things like hate detection, hate speech detection and verification of identity. And we we spend a lot of time and resource. We build uh, machine learning around it. And yeah, I'm not sorry for it because what I don't want to build is another product which has a moderation farm in another country where these people are getting PTSD because they're having to try and moderate after the fact. We do most of our moderation before it even hits the platform. And we're not perfect, but at least we're trying. So um, it's that thing where I think there is still a tendency for these things to, to kind of be reduced to something funny or trivial when, you know, it's not funny or trivial that women's lives are effectively supporting the economy right now we don't get support in childcare, but we're expected to contribute to the workplace like we never have before we don't get access to the top jobs because we're trying to balance childcare. we don't um, then get any support when we have something like menopause whether you're a mom or not it doesn't matter the point of the matter is if you menstruate you will go through menopause and yet we know suicide rates amongst women over 50 are the highest and women drop out of the workforce at two key stages in life when they have children and when they go through menopause. It's not a coincidence, but if society isn't built around kind of supporting women through these life stages, then 
let us build a product that will. So other women will support one another. And that's the way I look at it. And it, that's not flippant. And that's not silly. And that's not because I'm a entrepreneur. That's because I'm a woman. And I can see that if we have a place in society to contribute, then give us the support. And if you won't give it to us, we'll build something so we can support each other. I mean, that's another point that I wanted to make is because it is reductive the way people talk about things that women are interested in. But there's another thing I think about particularly when I think about, for example, I don't know, sports or TV or whatever, this untapped audience that you're not catering for, it's a market, isn't it? It's an untapped market. And this is big business as as much as anything else, because I think I read between December 2019 and April 2020, your community had grown from 1 million users at that point to 1.6 million users and that you just secured $12 million in a round of fundings. These aren't, you know, like small potatoes, are they? This is big business as well. Women are responsible for $40 trillion in spend. $40 trillion in spend, right? Women in who are aged 19 to 44 outspend men, their male counterparts, by 66% per capita. We are making the decisions on household spend. We are making most of the decisions about consumer choices. And who's building for us? Who, who's doing that? So it, it's no joke and it is big business. And one of my investors just before this just texted me saying, I just read a report where everyone's really happy because um, investing in female founders has gone up by like something embarrassing, like 1%. And everyone's like, well, it's gone up. Yeah, but we get 2% of funding. That means 98% of all companies that are founded by men. And that means that, of course, no one's building for us. The worst for me, actually, is is if we're not investing in women who are solving for women's issues, then, you know, something's deeply, deeply broken. I can go on all day about it, but it's, it's no joke and women need it. And just because you can't use it and, and you hold the pen to the checkbook, Go and go and do a bit of investigation about the the women who do want to use it and what they would use it for because I think that's that's the most important point. So obviously you've grown the community. So now it's talking about more things. It's not just about isolated mums. It's as you say, like menopause, and that is obviously something that we're only just sort of really starting to talk about in any meaningful way in in the sort of public spaces. So that is huge. Why did you want to extend it? I think we had women who were already talking about issues regarding kind of the next life stage on peanut anyway. So whether you are going through fertility challenges because you've got early menopause or chemically induced or surgically induced menopause, right? We had women talking about that. We equally had women who, you know, are going through perimenopause and they're in their late 30s, early 40s. That's completely normal, by the way, and something that I had absolutely no idea about. Menopause can go on for eight years didn't know about it. We can be having symptoms, you know, from the age of 38, didn't know about it. So for me, it was a conscious step to listen to our audience and our user base who are already talking about these issues and then say, do you know what? Yeah, it's a legitimate point. We need more support. And what do you need at the kind of start of your menopausal journey? Women who are a bit further along who can help you out, right? That's what you want. You want to understand from them. So it was a very conscious step outside of motherhood to be more inclusive to anyone who is menstruating effectively, anyone who, who is going to go through it. And the response has been amazing. And you're right, in the UK, we are starting to have more of a conversation. Women are talking about this more. By the way, in the US, it's still a desert. 
like people aren't talking about it and and that is part of the problem so i think that as a society generally we like fetishize fertility and youth mm. so if you think about when a girl gets her first period and everyone's like oh you're a woman now it's gross you're 15 you're not a woman you're a child still <laughs> right so but yeah. we do we do that weird stuff and then it's all about that part of her life and then because the menopause is something where it's almost the end of something we don't talk about it or it's shameful or it's stigmatized and yet there are so many important factors that will biologically happen to you related to menopause we don't even know about if you're a doctor, you get 90 minutes of training on menopause. 90 minutes? What? That's 50% of the population. So why did we want to do it? Because I want Peanut to open up. Because I want three generations of women all in the same family to all use Peanut and all find what they need from it and to find support and to find community and to find fun. But also because, my God, no man's going to build it for us. So we're going to to do it amen to that so if someone's listening and they're a bit like that sounds cool i'm interested in that but i'm not sure if it's for me and maybe i feel like a bit weird and silly about it what advice would you give them on approaching the app themselves first thing if you're not up for like the one-to-one connection if it feels too much too soon just don't use that part of the app there are other parts of the app. So you can go on, you can drop into other people's conversations, you can listen. If you're someone who like feels a bit shy, just listen to other women chatting and you, you might want to get involved or you might not. It becomes like a companion, honestly. I listen to it all the time. I love it. I work late, so I always am listening to it in the evenings. It makes me feel like weirdly less lonely sitting in my office on my own. So dip in there. Join the groups. There's amazing groups on Peanut. I love it. There, there will be a group for whatever you're into. Read, watch, listen, observe. You don't have to use that part of the app, but I guarantee you, you'll start doing it and you'll use that part of the app anyway because it's fun. And because one thing that you know, there's no rejection. In real life, you know how hard it is to go up to another person and be like, hi, looking for a friend, a bit lonely. No, that's really hard. Like, don't reject me. It doesn't happen on Peanut. Like, you're all there for the same thing. So don't let yourself feel isolated just because this is something new. Because you tried Spotify once and now you listen to your music on that, right? It just... Like, five years ago, you probably didn't know what a podcast was, guys. So, you know, and here we are. (laughs) Michelle, thank you so much for chatting to me. Can you please tell me where we can follow you on the socials if we want to find out more about what you're up to and also where we can find peanut if we want to get involved yeah peanut is on the app store and on the play store search peanut you can follow me on twitter at shell kennedy lamb and the same actually on instagram brilliant thank you so much this has been an absolute joy and you're brilliant and i agree with everything you've said thank you so much Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Catherine Deakin, Director of Fundraising and Communications and Deputy CEO of the charity Changing Faces. Welcome to Standard Issue. Hi, Hannah. So, Changing Faces, you support and advocate for people with facial differences, which is quite a broad group because we're talking about people who were born with facial differences and also people who may have never given them a single thought until they were left with facial differences after an accident or maybe an illness. Give us the broad strokes of how many people are affected by facial differences in the UK and what sort of issues they have to deal with day to day. 
Yeah, of course. So we know actually that one in five people across the UK today identify as having some sort of visible difference on their face or body. And as you said, this could be anything from something like they're born with, like a birthmark, to something they get later in life, like scarring from an accident or even cancer treatment. And the challenges they tell us they face is, is multiple challenges in all areas of their lives, really. You know, they have problems accessing healthcare, they have problems getting work. One in three of them tell us that they feel depressed or anxious because of how they look. And we're here to support people to kind of live their, their best lives if they if they do look different and get the support they need. But also, as you said, to challenge the kind of stigma and discrimination that affects people who look different, because we know that sadly too often, you know, what we what we hear from our community is that, you know, they have this kind of daily grind of like stares and comments every time they go out, abuse and harassment on social media, but also in real life as well. So there's quite a number of challenges that these, you know, people who look different are facing every day, really. I saw on your site that it said that 23% of people felt self-conscious or embarrassed in public. But 36%, that's huge, reported hostile behaviours. I find that, well, I find that incredible, but at the same point, I don't find that incredible, which is quite depressing, really. It's pretty bad in terms of what people with visible differences have to face every day. We did some research last year that actually told us one in four people had a kind of hate crime incident. So abuse or harassment where it actually was serious enough to be able to be reported to the police. And also one in 10 had experienced repeated harassment on social media. I mean, to give you an example, you know, I hear from our clients and our, our amazing campaigners, you know, Instances of being abused while being on public transport, like being on a bus or train, having names called to them. Really terrible stuff happening to them every day on social media, you know, being told essentially, you know, they should go, you know, and, well, it's terrible to say it, but kind of kill themselves and, you know, saying, you know, you look like a monster, you look like a freak. Sadly, that's what people are experiencing every day. You know, what we're here to do is to call that out and encourage people to to kind of report such behaviour when they do see it, because sadly it is too prevalent, really. Now, we talk a lot on this podcast in general about what a disaster social media has been for the mental health of young people, partly because it focuses in on looks and girls in particular, but also young men. It puts them under a lot of pressure. For example, recently we talked about a growing level of eating disorders amongst men. But also it's a disaster because it means that the bullies come home with you. It's not like you can come in and close your bedroom door. I'm guessing that for some of the young people that you deal with, these issues are even more acute. Definitely. I think, you know, social media can be an amazing place for people who have a visible difference to kind of connect and and talk to each other. And and one of the things we often hear from young people who have a visible difference is that, you know, I, I never see or meet anyone that looks like me and that makes me feel really alone. So actually social media can be amazing. We're kind of fostering that mm. sense of pity. But it's it's like you said, it's um, also a space where they don't escape the abuse and harassment that they face face to face as well. And as I kind of mentioned, you know, one in one in ten people who have visible difference say they're repeatedly harassed on social media. Often people kind of have issues around they they post content which is shared again without their permission. They have people you know abusing them and mocking them because how they look. And it isn't a safe space, people with visible differences. So We've been doing a lot of work as a charity with our campaigners to kind of raise awareness of the fact that social media needs to be a better space for people who look different. And, you know, working with people like the Home Office and social media companies to improve that. So we've actually got some resources that we've developed with people like Facebook and Twitter 
on our website, which people can access if they need some help. But, you know, lots more needs to be done to kind of make it a safer space. What sort of support does, does this group need? Because I'm guessing to some degree it might fall into like a disability hate crime, but other people would response would be this is absolutely not a disability. This is a port wine stain. Do you think that people with facial differences need to be treated as a distinct group? So this is one of the things we've been talking to the government about in that you're absolutely right. We want people to report when they experience a, a hate incident. You know, if they're getting abused because of how they look, they need to tell the police and, and get the support they need. But for many people who have a visible difference, they don't identify as disabled. But at the moment, the current reporting processes for people who experience a hate crime is um, that for visible difference, it would definitely fall under disability. So that can feel quite confusing for some of our community who just wouldn't say I'm disabled mm. at all. But what we would say is that however the, the phrase, the, the kind of rights and protections are there. So do talk to police. So like if you experience yourself or you see someone experience a hate crime because of how they look, report it to the police or another third party reporting agency, whether it's victim support and, and get the help or come to us and, and get the help you need. And I would say the same on um, social media as well. We've got resources on our website about this. But essentially, if you see something happen, like, you know, call it out and, and report it because... You know, we've been working really closely with social media companies to, to address online hate towards people who look different too. So it can feel tricky and that does lead to, we believe, might be exacerbating some underreporting by people with visible differences because they just don't see themselves disabled. But I think also what we hear is there's quite a high level of resonation. It's kind of like they, people experience it so often. It's, it's terrible. They experience it so often, so frequently it's almost like a resignation of like, this is just how things are. Yeah, the new normal. Yeah, it's not. You shouldn't have to cope with anyone being aggressive, calling you names, being abusive or harassing you just because of how you look. That's not acceptable. And there is support there for you. So, you know, I say it again, but if you've seen something like that, or if you experienced it directly, go and talk to the police about it because they should, you know, they should be taking it seriously and they, and they will or come to us and, you know, look at the resources we've got to support you on this, um, particularly if you need any emotional support. Yeah, I've got a couple of friends who have facial differences. One was born that way, the other mm. acquired it through an accident. Actually, to be fair, it wasn't an accident, it was an attack that left okay. them with a with a facial yeah. scar. Both of them have said to me in the past that one of the things they find most frustrating is that when children encounter them and talk to them about it, because children do, that an adult with that child normally says, leave it alone, come over here, and that they think that that exacerbates the problem because it leaves children with a, oh, don't mention it. Is there a good way for us to be telling our, like, let's start with youngsters, in how to interact with someone that they meet that does look different? In terms of um, interacting with young young children, this is something we, we talk to our campaigners in our community about a lot. And one of the things that our campaigner, Athol, for example, talks about is um it's almost like the explain reassure divert technique so of course young kids are going to look I mean that's quite natural mm. but as you say I mean if you're pulling them away or kind of shutting down that conversation it makes things awkward for both them and and for the person affected with the visible difference so what we tend to say is you know if you're a parent of a child who's noticed someone who looks different just kind of explain it to say oh you know I've noticed you've noticed that kid in a playground looks slightly different reassure them so kind of say he you know he doesn't look like he's in any pain does he and then divert them basically mm. so you know should we go and play on the swings with him it's explaining that 
people do look different and actually using that as an opportunity to celebrate difference and say, you know, everyone does look different. Look, I look different to you. I've got a colour, different hair colour, as opposed to, as you said, pulling them away from that conversation, which just makes it awkward and it misses the opportunity to explain. And we know when we do get to young children earlier that it does challenge that inherent prejudice and stigma that can kind of build up. One of the things that we offer, we've got some amazing resources on our website. They're called A World of Difference and they're for classrooms and for teachers because we know if we can get to young people and talk about celebrating diversity as opposed to kind of hiding away from it or, or, or not acknowledging it, that can be a really powerful thing. So I'd really encourage anyone listening to log on and have a look at those because they're great. Great. Now, you are running a number of campaigns at the minute. Let's start with Emmerdale. You have been working with the makers of Emmerdale about a plot line about someone who is left with a facial difference, I believe, after a fire. Can you tell me a bit about how you got involved in that and why you think it's important that that that's happening in Emmerdale? Definitely. So we've been working with ITV for a while to look at how we can see more more positive and accurate representation of people who look different on TV because we know... When we see that, it can really change minds and and attitudes towards looking different. And we had the opportunity to talk to the Emmerdale team about a storyline they were doing with the character called Priya, acted by the amazing Fiona Wade. And the fact that Priya was going to experience burns in an accident, it was, you know, the typical, very sensation soap storyline and like full of drama, which you'd expect. But the opportunity to actually show the lived experience of living with a burns injury and and particularly to show the psychological impact that it has in terms of how it makes you feel. So, you know, working with um, Fiona and the team at Emmerdale to really kind of explore the language they should be using, the reality of the experience that she'd be going through. But most importantly, to talk about the fact it does have a mental health impact as a physical one. It's been amazing. So we got to introduce Fiona to our fantastic ambassador, Catherine Pugh, who herself was in a um, an accident when she was 19. She um, sustained... I think it was ninety six percent burns to her body, so the only things that weren't burnt mm-hmm. were the yeah soles of her feet and her scalp. Um, and she spoke about when she was nineteen in the hospital bed, obviously getting amazing kind of care. I mean, it took months and months and months of recovery, and she still has support now. She said when she was like nineteen, kind of looking at magazines like Cosmopolitan and Glamour, and thinking, you know, I I, I just don't see anyone who looks like me. You know, what, what's my future going to be going forward? And I think it's been a really nice kind of loop that she's been able to be involved and advise Fiona because, you know, if one person sees what Priya, the character's going and, and recognises that, that's amazing. It's also been a brilliant opportunity to signpost our services that are available as well. We hope that people are watching and thinking, actually, I'm going to give Changing Faces a ring because I don't need to struggle alone. Yeah. So it's been a brilliant thing to work on. It's been really, really good fun. And I read a blog that was on your website by one of your young champions called Hannah, great name, who wrote a piece about how there is now a character in Mallory Towers that has a facial difference and how it has actually made a marked improvement to her life because she can see it and it's a really positive thing. So let's get on to James Bond, which is another campaign you've been running recently because James Bond's not afraid to have a facial difference in it, but almost always a baddie. Tell me about that. So we've been looking for a while with our campaigners and our community at the fact that, you know, what we hear from them is, um, as we were talking about, they never see anyone that looks like them. They never see anyone that looks like them on things like TV or in films. But when they do, it tends to be the villain, the outcast, the loser. And actually what they wanted to see was kind of more 
more positive representations are looking different. So, you know, why couldn't we see the love interest or the best friend or the person behind the bar in the wall pack with a visible difference? Because so many of us live with them. It's kind of seeing that on screen. And Bond is such an iconic moment in British cinema. You know, it was a, it was a big thing at coming out. The cinemas were reopening. It felt like a really important point to kind of have that conversation because... You know, I speak to our ambassadors and campaigners and one of them, Rory, told me about, you know, he grew up in the playground getting taunts like, you know, Joker and Scarface mm. and, and Blofeld because that's what people kind of, they see that and they transfer that over in terms of, you know, you could only be the villain or the, or the outcast. Mm. Or the, so it was a really positive opportunity to work with our campaigners to call upon the Bond team to think about, you know, and, and have a bit of a conversation about it really and, and the response from the public absolutely amazing you know over over two million views of the video we're able to kind of share the stories of our campaigners um, and get them on tv and radio and and just have a conversation about it and it's been really well received because it's one of those things people tell us like until you mentioned it I just hadn't seen it Mm. but once you see it it's really hard to hear Um, we're not saying there should ever be another villain with a visible difference it's about you know let's definitely see another character in Bond like let's see M or something with a visible difference um, next time. So, yeah. you know, we, we've at least started a conversation there. It's, it's waiting to see, you know, what the industry responds with. One of the things I would say is that the British Film Institute have been absolutely amazing on this issue. So they've actually um, made an ongoing decision not to fund films, which kind of have this lazy stereotype of visible difference in them. And they've been really supportive in terms of encouraging cinema to, and, and film to, re- to reflect that. So it's been brilliant to start working with them and, and fingers crossed we can see a bit of a difference going forward. Well, I'm glad you've had a really positive reaction to that. You've also got, you're non-stop. You are actually non-stop, Catherine. You've also got <laughs> another campaign starting this week about supporting parents of children and those children who have facial differences. Can we hear a bit about that? Yeah, of course. We were really happy to expand our services for families and children who have a visible difference. So we've expanded our services to run across all of the UK now. So if you're a parent or a sibling or a young child who has a visible difference or you're affected by it, you can get in touch with us and you can get things like one-to-one counselling sessions. We run group workshops and really fun sessions to kind of help you deal with that and support your young child. And we're launching an appeal this week, which is essentially talking about that expanded service, but also sharing the story of um, this amazing young mum called Georgia. And Georgia was quite young when she had her first baby, Theo, who's now seven Theo was born with a with a cleft and when she was pregnant she found out that Theo was going to have cleft. She talks really powerfully about the upset and the feelings of guilt, you know, was it something I did during the pregnancy to cause this? The worry about taking her baby to mother and baby groups and her baby looking different to all the others and, and the kind of stress of the, the ongoing surgeries that Theo would need. So she she'd had Theo and you know he'd had a couple of surgeries and then she found out she was pregnant again with her little boy Jude, who's now one. And again, Jude was born with a with a cleft and she talks about the kind of, you know, the worry about inflicting more surgeries on him. And we just want to kind of share that story and say to other parents that you don't have to struggle alone. There is this help for you. Come and talk to us. You know, give our support and information line a ring or book in for a counselling session. Come to one of our peer groups. Because again, parents tell us, you know, it can feel quite a lonely experience to go for yourself. So meeting other parents who have children with visible differences is really powerful. So we're launching that this Tuesday. 
And the brilliant opportunity with this appeal is that um, we've got one week where every donation that's given to Changing Faces will be doubled. So we're really kind of oh, cool. pushing. <laughs> and it's great, isn't it? <laughs> uh, thank you, Big Give. A um, <laughs> little bit of a plug for them there. But it's, it's really to help us raise the cost of that service to kind of keep it going another year. Because we just want to make sure we're here for more more parents and families affected by visible difference. So excited for that to launch, um, which will get run from the Tuesday, the 30th of November through to the Tuesday, the 7th of December. Yeah, so that's tomorrow as we speak, or yesterday yes. when this podcast came out. You've also got a Christmas party. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I feel we've been in full Christmas mode for a good couple of weeks now. <laughs> but we have a lovely, lovely family day on the 5th of December. And again, go to our website and check out the details. It's on. It's online because of covid Um but it's, it's really good fun. So it's, again, it's for parents of, of children with visible differences in their families. Come along. We've got things like a scavenger hunt. We've got various concessions people can drop in and out of. And, you know, if, if you do have a child that has a visible difference, you know, whether it's a birthmark or, you know, scarring or a cleft palate, come along and, and join in the fun because it will be it will be a good laugh. Yeah, there's lots of support out there. We know sometimes Christmas can feel quite difficult for people. So we just want to make sure everyone's getting the help they need. Mm-hmm. How can people find out more? Go to our website, which is changingfaces.org.uk. And it's really easy to find the resources we have available on kind of reporting hate incidents on there and getting support on social media. And if you need some emotional support there, there's it's our, our helplines there for you to give us a ring as well. So, yeah, you, again, you don't have to struggle alone with this. Give us a ring. Fantastic. Thanks ever so much for your time, right. Catherine. Thank you. on do one kid jenny off the blocks welcome to jenny off the blocks that time of the week where we put on our shiniest clothes as we celebrate all things women's sport i am absolutely ramo jammoed full of good news this week which is rare so let us whoop with delight and open proceedings with a massive round of applause for breakthrough star and just star of the year really Emma Raducanu, who was crowned the Sunday Times Sportswoman of the Year last week. What a year and what a deserved win. Raducanu has gone from being pretty much unknown to a household name in the course of just a few months this year after she became the youngest British woman to reach the final 16 at Wimbledon of the entire Open era, so that is since 1968. And also the youngest Grand Slam winner since 17-year-old Maria Sharapova won Wimbledon in 2004. She's also the first British woman to win a Grand Slam since Virginia Wade back in 1977, which she did in style at this year's US Open. What I'm saying to you is, I've said it before and I'll no doubt say it again, what an incredible breakthrough, what an incredible player. I'm so excited to see where her career takes her next. To give a little shout out to the other women while we're here, congratulations to Young Sportswoman of the Year, BMX rider and Olympic gold medalist Beth Shriver, confusingly three years older than Raducanu, but whatevs. Sky Sports Team of the Year, GB track cyclist Laura Kenny and Katie Archbold, who won the gold in the Madison at this year's Olympics. And to Disability Sportswoman of the Year, Hannah Cockcroft, wheelchair racer and double gold medalist at this year's Paralympic Games. Awards also went to Rachel Blackmore, Ellie Simmons, Dr Emma Ross and Clover Court. So we are in awards season 
and the much-coveted Ballon d'Or has also been handed out this week. Congratulations to Barcelona's Alexia Puteas, who won the Women's Prize and was lucky enough to actually be present to collect it. I say that because the glitzy event which took place in Paris was scheduled for the middle of the Women's International break. And because of that, all 20 of the nominees for the Women's Prize were therefore due to take place on the night of the ceremony or the following day. Tom Gary has written an article about this for the Telegraph Women's Sports section, which I'd like to point you in the direction of making a very valid point that although schedule clashes are common in these events, unlike the Leo Messi's of the men's game, far fewer of those women nominees can stump up the cash for a private jet. The scheduling, he argues, and it's hard to disagree, shows that women remain an afterthought in football. So yes, France football, this is me, you can hear slow clapping you. Okay, I promised you good news and I have more. Congratulations to the Welsh women's national football team who are to be paid the same amount as their male counterparts for playing for their country by 2026. Okay, it's less great news if you're set to retire within the next five years, I guess. Why wait? Just crack on and pay them the same. The England men's and women's team have been paid the same since January last year. And I'm not saying that like it's wildly progressive for a really wealthy institution to pay its men and women an equal amount for doing the same job, which is to represent their countries. I'm just asking, what are you waiting for? A final piece of good news and indeed any news for this week. Well done to UK Sport, which has announced that following a wide ranging 18 month consultation that it has published pregnancy guidance for the Olympic and Paralympic high performance community. The UK's elite sport governing body said that it fundamentally believes that starting a family and being an elite athlete should not be mutually exclusive. In addition to the guidance, it's also announced that any athlete on a world-class programme and in receipt of an Athlete Performance Award will continue to receive their award throughout pregnancy and for up to nine months post-childbirth. This is good news, and I don't say it very often, but well done, UK Sport. That's all from me for this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Oh, sorry, give me one second. Just taking a bump of coke off Gary Boosie's knuckle there. Jen! (laughs) (laughs) What did you make us watch this week? This week we watched 1976 remake of presumably one of the most remade films ever, 1937's A Star Is Born. It was also remade, fact fans, in 1954 and latterly in 2018, starring Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. The original film was about actors, but this remake follows the journey of two musicians, John Norman Howard, played by Chris Christopherson, and Esther Hoffman, played by Barbara Streisand. Directed by Frank Pearson, perhaps better known for his screenwriting credits, which include Cool Hand Luke and Dog Day Afternoon, for which he won an Oscar, Infighting was rumoured to be rife between Pearson and executive producers Streisand and then-husband John Peters. Indeed, an article written by Pearson in 1976 entitled My Battles with Barbara and John sort of tells you everything you need to know. (laughs) You can find that online. It's, It's quite a lengthy article. Some trivia because we love a bit of that. Others considered for the role of John Norman included Neil Diamond, who would have fit right in here. It's got some jazz singer vibes, hasn't it? Yeah. It may have saved us the jazz singer if they'd (laughs) cast him in this. 
And Elvis Presley seems to have been a serious contender for the role, but apparently his management didn't want him to portray a star on the decline. Oh, no, you wouldn't have wanted that in 1976 for Elvis, would you? (laughs) (laughs) So let's look at the plot, as I've just alluded to a key point there. John Norman Howard is a troubled megastar with a penchant for extremely low-cut shirts, Jack Daniels, being late and crashing motorbikes. My kind of guy. (laughs) It's quite handsome in a sort of like, hang on, are you the same age as me kind of way? Because you look, I hope he looks considerably older than me. But anyway, there's something about the, I don't know, maybe it's the the leathery kind of hue. But um, I'll be honest with you, I think it was the lifestyle. (laughs) But maybe we can talk about that in a bit as well. For sure. Anyway, he meets bar singer Esther Hoffman, to whom he is horribly rude, and Ovos, they end up leaving her gig together after he gets into a fight and it descends into chaos. Now, quite a lot goes on in this two-hour and 19-minute film. There is a lot of preamble, so I'm going to summarise thus. He's a prick, they get together, he makes her famous, they go and live on a ranch, which apparently he builds single-handedly with a cement mixer... She gets more famous, he gets less famous. Drama and the same fucking song again and again and again ensues relentlessly. Mm-hmm. I am being a bit facetious because, spoiler alert, I didn't hate this film. And that surprises me. But anyway, I mean, I hated John Norman Howard. We'll come back to that. But I didn't hate this film. So I was kind of surprised by its 35% Rotten Tomatoes approval rating. I'm also a bit surprised by some of the critical reception. For example, a lack of chemistry between its stars was cited by some of the critics. I thought their chemistry was all right. Oh, no, I didn't I didn't buy it, I'm afraid. Okay. He kind of nailed the way he looked at her thing, but I didn't really believe that she was giving it back. Okay. So I'd say 50% on the chemistry. A New York Times review by Vincent Canby said the film was louder than ever, but very small in terms of being about anything whatsoever. And I have to say, I disagree with that as well. Anyway, perhaps predictably, it was the music that did the business in terms of the award season, picking up Academy Awards, Golden Globes, BAFTAs and Grammys. Though Streisand and Christopherson both picked up Golden Globes for their efforts as well. And the ticket receipts don't lie, grossing $80 million at the box office. It was the second highest grossing film of the year. Now, I don't think any of us had watched any iteration of this film until now. Is that right? Yeah. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So I picked this because I was expecting something akin to The Jazz Singer, one of our most fun RODs, I would say. And I thought it was going to be frivolous and joyous for all the wrong reasons. And man, I was wrong. And I'm a little bit traumatised, to be honest. <laughs> Is this film what you guys expected? Yes, because it's very melodramatic. And the 70s loved a bit of melodrama, didn't they? And I think the interesting thing about it was Streisand was already a massive star before they made the film A Star Is Born. So those receipts at the box office, potentially why the film doesn't work artistically, because she was already a huge draw, as was Judy Garland, obviously, in the 1954 one. But she had been in decline. And so, yeah, I kind of knew what to expect. And that is any film Streisand is in, Streisand will dominate. And that's kind of why it ruined it a little bit for me, maybe. Interesting. The thing that surprised me, and I suppose I should have known and worked it out, but actually Chris Christopherson isn't considerably older than Barbara Streisand in this. And I was expecting it to be a bit more uncomfortable in terms of, 
you know, hello, little girl, because the gap in age between Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper is more substantial. Is it? I would say it is, yeah. So I found it, like, horribly bleak. I mean, it is, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's about an addict. But it's about, it's about yeah. loving an addict in the music industry. Yeah, yeah like, it's horribly bleak. It's horribly bleak. And he is, I mean, it's the 70s. I suppose the most obvious point. Hi there, toxic masculinity. How are you today? See now, while that is almost a given, because like you said, it's set in the music industry and it's set in the 70s, I didn't think he had loads of toxic masculinity. Because he's an addict. He is an addict, but also he is very keen to help her and to, to push her. The thing that jarred for me was obviously with the other A Star Is Born there's a jealousy that kicks in when the star gets borned mm-hmm. and gets borned higher and higher. But he doesn't, whether it's just it, the, the script doesn't cover it, but I never felt like he was jealous. I just felt like his addiction Ooh. took over. The bit with Quentin, the journalist, is horrible. The woman at the end. So the woman in the pool. So there's a lady I'll in the pool yeah. who's a journalist who wants to interview Is she Esther. a journalist? <laughs> well, yeah. who knows? I mean, um, I'll be honest, it's how I get all my interviews. <laughs> you don't need to do it every time for the Bush Telegraph, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> so she's swimming around in his pool and she says she wants to interview his missus and then he gets her into bed. Like, that seems to be his response to, I want to interview your wife. Let's fuck then. It's it, like, that seems to me to be like a very explicit fuck you to his wife. Does it not? <sighs> it's very transactional, like... He gets her into bed or she gets him into bed. She's decided that's the price she will pay. And the the script is iffy as fuck to have included that, absolutely. But I don't know, is it his addiction taking over? Is it a jealousy thing? Is it a bit of both? And you may well be right, but there's no build-up to that. He's he's massively encouraging until what then? I feel like they, they missed a bit of the plot. Nah, there's the bit of the Grammys is awful as well. Yeah, but he is encouraging. He makes her famous basically by dragging her on stage. Yeah. Which is both a good and a bad thing, isn't it? Mm. It's a thing where you think, what sort of fucking prick does that? Particularly since she's dressed like she works in the Midland Bank circa 1972. (laughs) (laughs) But if he hadn't done it, her career wouldn't have kicked off as it did. So it's a bad thing to do, but it turned out to be necessary. So that is kind of toxic. But no, I never got the impression that he was so super jealous of her because he seemed to be a clusterfuck of a a human being before she even arrived on the scene. Uh Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Hannah's probably articulated it better. And I must add the caveat that I don't think he's a good guy. I'm not like, oh, come on, Jen. He's a sweetheart. Not at all. But yeah, I just feel like you get in bed with an addict. I did have some empathy for him. Like Mm. I did, you know, you do. I don't think he's a character that is without you know, empathy or, or sympathy or, or... bit of both. You know. There's an interesting question of, if fame has fucked him up to such a degree, he can only ever get through one song. I mean, why anyone buys a ticket to see him? I don't know, because <laughs> it seems really insubstantial performances. But why you would wish that on anyone else? Yeah, he's not having yeah. a nice time with fame, is he? He doesn't give a shit no. about his fans. He doesn't give a shit about his songs or his legacy or anything that he's creating. He doesn't give a shit about his band. So to go to someone, oh, come on in, come on in, have a nice time, when I'm not, does seem a bit weird. And he actually does the big speech to her of, oh, you've got all this to come, doesn't he? Mm. Is anyone here a, a Barbara Streisand or a Chris Christopherson fan? 
No. I called my Christmas tree Chris Christmastofferson once. <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, yeah. I liked him in Blade. thought he was very good in Blade. And I do mm. think he's kind of attractive in that kind of 70s man way. Uh, yeah. Streisand, my mum was a huge fan of Streisand, that torch singer. She has got an incredible voice. And mm. so I have a couple dotted on various playlists, my saddest playlists or my kind of Bridget Jones playlist, I suppose, yeah. in my in my pantheon of Spotify playlists. Yeah, but that's about it. I wouldn't necessarily go and put on a Streisand or watch a Streisand film, mm. but I, I think her talent is undeniable, whether it tickles yeah. your pickle or not. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, like, I like Chris Christopherson. In fact, I like all that outlaw country stuff. Johnny Cash, mm. Willie Nelson, mm. I love Johnny Jennings, Cash. all of those. Yeah, and they were, I think, going back to Jen's point, mad, bad and dangerous to know in the 70s. In fact, fun fact, although this isn't very fun, obviously, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but Chris Christopherson was Janis Joplin's boyfriend when yeah. she died. Oh. Yeah. So, like, So the criticism that it's very small in terms of being about absolutely anything whatsoever. Do you think that's fair? I don't think that's fair at all. I think it's about quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it's about the same as every iteration of A Star Is Born. It's about fame, it's about addiction, it's about love, it's about perception of the person you love. I think it's quite big. Too much of it is about love. You could lose 20 minutes out of it quite easily for me. Because I didn't really invest in, I don't really invest in love stories, I felt like it, there could have been more of the other stuff and it might have been more interesting. I couldn't, I found it hard to invest in their love story as well because it goes from absolutely nothing to full on. There's no kind of explanation as to why these two people would fall in love. And I, I didn't get the chemistry that Jen got and even half the chemistry that Hannah got. So yeah, I was a bit like, oh, okay. And then their love's really all-consuming and then it gets sort of almost thrown away and there's that weird scene where she says, I'm going to kill you, I'll kill you, and then yeah. she fucks him and I'm like, well, that's mixed messages, that's very confusing. They haven't even checked that the journalist left the house when all that <laughs> happens. I kept thinking she's going to just walk past really awkwardly, like in her pants in a minute in the background of that scene. Or just recording <laughs> it, she was just still recording. <laughs> I did think when I watched it, if this is what this is, why do they keep remaking it? And then I suppose my second thought was, if this has the potential, but has been clearly to some degree unsatisfactorily made, perhaps people think that they can make a better version of it. Perhaps they think the knob of it is good and then keep remaking it because of that. I don't think there needs to be four different versions of this film out in the world. <laughs> Five, if you count the 1932 film What Price Hollywood, which apparently some people do as the first sort of iteration of, oh, fame can be a bit of a bastard, can't it? But... Apparently, when I read some pieces that had rated the all four A Star Is Borns, and this one consistently came at the bottom. Really? Yeah. I'm absolutely amazed that it's written by the same guy that wrote Dog Day Afternoon, because Dog Day Afternoon is arguably the best film made in the 1970s. It's a very good film. Yeah. What about her, then? What do you make of Esther, other than, you know, still in the show, Streisand? I think it's hard to get over the fact it's Barbara Streisand playing this up-and-coming singer when she's Barbara Streisand. She's already this huge star. And I found it really hard to kind of put away that knowledge 
and go, okay, this is Esther. She's already got loads and loads of confidence. She isn't particularly shy around him. She's not particularly learning stuff from him. She literally just goes into the studio and does things her way and tells his band what to do, which, you know, fucking good on her. But there didn't feel like there was a sense of him teaching her how to be famous and how to be good and how to harness her incredible natural talent. It just felt like she needed to get in a studio and then she'd have done good anyway. Yeah, because she was confident enough right at the start to, mm. like, publicly shame him for fucking up Exactly that, yeah. yeah. So maybe I found the character of Esther a little bit unbelievable and it did feel weird that she clearly shopped at Clockhouse at C&A. <laughs> <laughs> she reminded me, weirdly, in parts of Victoria Wood. Oh, Kimberly. <laughs> no, there's something about her... She's a really good comic actress. Agreed. Yeah. So yeah. There, there, there's something about the way she sings when she's joking along that reminded me of Victoria Wood, and I can't I can't explain any more than that. But um, yeah, which is a compliment. Yeah, obviously. I mean she's a, she's a great singer and she's a great actress, and I think again that you know kind of undermines that Esther's supposed to be the ingenue. And you're right, there doesn't look like there's much of an age gap between them. Didn't feel like Esther had that innocence. I think it's about seven or eight years about between. Five. Is that all there is between Streisand and? Oh, I think he. I think she's seventy nine and he's eighty five. So right, six. so six years. Yeah. yeah. So there isn't that sort of paternal thing about it. Yeah. Yeah, which is a good thing. It is. Yeah. Apart from that's not the story when but you that's look not at the what plot. the other yeah. one is. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to mention about um, a star is born? Can we talk about his alcoholism and his addiction and how that is handled? Because sometimes I thought it was handled quite well and like quite believably for someone acting it. Because acting drunk, even the best actors can be really shit at it. And sometimes I thought it just felt like it was throwaway. Like at the end, is it suicide? Is it an accident? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose to a certain degree in the 70s... And like I say, Chris Christopherson himself, Waylon Jennings. In fact, all of the people he was hanging around with, Johnny Cash, all had mm. addiction problems. You're sort of par for the course almost, right? I wonder if, if they just think people just sort of get it. It's like, hey, this is this is like a shortcut to, you know what Chris Christopherson and those guys are like in real life? Well, he's just like that. Mm. And they show it like that. I mean, there's quite a funny bit at the start, isn't it, where Gary Boosie gives him like a Coke and then says, well, I've promised him you'll turn up here straight. And you're like, mm. the, 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 the clash between those two things are like ridiculous. I don't know in the 70s whether anybody would have been saying, pull yourself together, do that, or whether that was just what people expected of their rock stars. It's interesting as well that it's clearly habit. And I know that sounds like a really fucking obvious to say about an addiction. But when he's been away from them, they've been in that house that he's hand built using a cement mixer and just his brawn. And then he comes back to the stage like Gary Boosie just puts the bump on his knuckle and he takes it without thinking and is mm. straight back into that that yeah. world. I just feel there's no empathy from the script or from the people around no, him. No, no. I mean, his idea of an apology is uh, a, a box of Jack Daniels. <laughs> yes. He, he never looks truly that pissed to me. I mean, yeah, he is. He's pissed, obviously, and he's playing pissed. OK, but we never see him struggling to get out of bed in the morning with a hangover. You only see the one side of it rather than the other side mm, of it. That's but, true. Yeah. I'm interested to know whether... Having seen this, you have more or less interest in watching the one with Lady Gaga in it. 
I found it horribly bleak, and apparently the Lady Gaga one is very similar to this one, so I, I probably won't bother. I'd be quite interested to see it, because I read four different articles that were rating A Star Is Born, and the Bradley Cooper Gaga one came out top every single time. Mm. Streisand yeah. didn't like it. But she, she didn't. Was, <laughs> she said she was surprised by how similar it was to her version. Interesting. Yeah. Two things. The first thing is, I know for a fact, because I've seen people just, just randomly by osmosis, you know, via Twitter, I know for a fact that chemistry issue seems to have been fixed in the second one. Everyone yeah. was wagging on about what great chemistry they had. The fourth the one, s- Hannah, not the second one. <sighs> Sorry. <this> one. <laughs> There's so the many fuck? of them. <laughs> Should we say the last one and then maybe that'll be hopeful. Um, <laughs> but also... Barbara Streisand, as Mickey was said, was an established star, whereas a lot of the thing was, I think, came with a level of surprise that Lady Gaga could do what she did. The acting bit, yeah. So it gave her a lot of sort of positive, a lot of positivity came from that. Yeah. I think this is, I, I'm genuinely a little bit torn over this. How, do, how are we feeling about this? Are we rating or dating? Like all of my clothes from Clockhouse at CNA, this is dated. <laughs> Yeah, I would say like almost every film that Chris Christopherson has made, unfortunately, I'm going to go with Dated. I'm going to make us watch Blade at some point. Yeah, I might make us watch Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Oh, I'm up for it. I actually don't think it's that dated. I think it's still quite relevant if you think it's about anything, which I sort of do. Well, I mean, it's been remade 25,000 times, so there must be <laughs> something that's still relevant about it. But I, I, I didn't really enjoy it, I have to say. I, I wouldn't watch it again. I mean, I've got to say it's dated, Jen, so that when we release our remake, the three of us... Oh, yeah, cool. Who's going to be it? Gary Boosie? We're all going to take it in turns <laughs> to play Gary Boosie. <laughs> Great. OK, who's up next? It's me, isn't it? It's me. Yeah. And because, you know, it's going to be December. It's, I mean, it's December when this is out, but it's going to be further into December. So we're going to watch 1946's It's a Wonderful Life. Is it, Mick? Well, is it? Well. Standard issue for all women. <laughs> 